This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Tony Twist of TCM International Institute hosted a track called Disciple Making Theology Matters. Here's the track session from TCM International Institute. I want to adapt a story that I once heard Jim Collins uh, tell, and uh, you may recognize the name Jim Collins, who was well-known 10 years or so ago for good to great. He tells a story about, um, imaginary story, about going into your faculty or your office um, lounge, the kitchen, and seeing an egg, a large egg, sitting on a table. Collins says, imagine that you go in there, and the first time you see it, it's odd. Everyone pauses, they look at it, and... Um, you know, just grabs your attention. But then the next day you see it, it's still sitting there. You don't think so much about it. And after maybe a couple of weeks, you just don't even see it anymore. You just ignore it. It's just there. It's part of the art. It's uh, a table ornament or something. Colin says, then suddenly, on day 37, for reasons you have um, no explanation for, the egg opens up and an eagle flies out. Colin says, here's what would probably happen. Marketers would come and they would try to figure out the secret to how to turn a white ball into an eagle. Others would come in and they might describe a biological process, be really fascinated with how the biology of this occurs. Or maybe chemists would come in and talk about what actually happened uh, chemically when this um, all this stuff that was once a white thing suddenly flew off and was able to make these noises and itself reproduce. And of course, some... uh, uh, some pastor would come in and turn this into a, a miracle story and try to raise some money off of it and so forth. But Colin says, now, you know what really happened. What really happened is that for 37 days, unseen by you, a massive transformation was occurring inside the shell. And when it finally reached maturity, it broke out and flew. When I read Acts chapter 2 and I read about the Acts 2 church, My first feeling is how in the world were they able to achieve not only 3,000 baptisms in one service, but the kind of church that still inspires us and still is, for a lot of us, not just the first of many churches, but sort of the archetypal church, the church that we never want to get away from. uh, uh, So I often preach something around Acts 2, and I'll say, man, uh, that's just the church that I always want to be. I just want to be Acts 2. Over and over, and I never get tired of it. I want to read to you just a clip or two from Acts 2 because I want you to hear again the thrill and the inspiration of what it looks like when the egg hatches. Listen to this. Let me cough. (coughs) They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. By the way, it's like the shock and awe church. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. The believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together. In the temple courts they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number every day those who were being saved. If you look at that text and you can feel sort of the pulsing um, spirit in that text, as I think I can, it is sort of an important question. What had to happen in the eggs in order for this thing to break out and fly in Acts chapter 2? And because we know the story now, because we have the Gospels, here's what happened. For three years, Jesus invested his life in the lives of 12 men. And by investing in the lives of 12 men, in some ways imperceptible to the world around, Jesus was forming what would eventually become the eagle of Acts chapter 2 that would break forth and fly. If you want to be an Acts 2 church, first you have to be a gospel church. I mean, the first thing you have to do if you want to experience this kind of change is that we really have to restore not only the message of Jesus, and you've heard this all over the conference this weekend, 
that it's not just that the message of Jesus is perfect, and it is perfect, but the method of Jesus is perfect as well. I mean, Jesus knew how to do this. And so as David Roadcup, who's one of my favorite humans, by the way, and did a fantastic job in the last hour, as David mentioned, uh, Jesus knows and had available to him all all available educational models. And the one he chose was the classic educational model that I want us to think through and, um, and really sort of explore some ways to teach today. And that is the discipleship model. That's the model Jesus chose. So Jesus could have come. He could have opened a university. I think I would have liked to have done that. He could have, uh, Jesus could have gone down. You, 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 some of you have been to, the, uh, to Israel. You've seen in uh, Caesarea Maritime, you've seen the theater that's still there. The theater there will hold 25,000 people. And as far as we know, Jesus never visited Caesarea. He, he could have gone down and had a crusade. I mean, imagine what it would have been like. Jesus is coming, 25,000 people. The city of Sepphoris, three miles from Nazareth, has a massive five, six, seven thousand 7,000-seat theater. Jesus probably helped build it. Honestly, it was being built in Herod's day. Jesus could well have gone there and said, we're going to do a crusade. We're going to go to all the major cities of the empire. He doesn't choose that model. Jesus could have had any of the models that we might pick today, but the model he chose was 12 men. That was his model. Three years, 12 men. And then he says to all 12 men, well, to the 11 who survived, he says to them, now, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go do what I just did for you. And so all four Gospels end with some sort of commission. You have in Matthew 28 the classic uh, you know, the, sort of the definitive text for most of us. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. But you get it also in, this, uh, in the longer reading of Mark's gospel, where you have at the end of Mark's gospel, in 15 and 16 of chapter 16, go preach the gospel. You have this call, go out there. Whoever believes and is baptized is saved. Remember in John chapter 20, as John is winding down his gospel, Jesus says, Now I breathe to the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now go, you go as if the Father sent me. Now I'm sending you. And I don't want you to miss the word as. Jesus is not just saying, Hey, I hope you do this because I did it. But he's saying, Do it the way I did it. We get in Luke's gospel, remember, as Jesus is opening the minds of the disciples at the end in chapter 24 of Luke's gospel, where Jesus breathes on them the Holy Spirit, where there's this sense there that... or. or well, breathing on the Holy Spirit, John, in, in Luke's gospel, it's in his opening their eyes. And then he says, now, you're going to be my witnesses. A thing that's picked up in Acts chapter 1. You're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to go in ever-increasing circles to the whole world, taking what's happened to me. So what I've been asked to do is to walk us through a process for how we would teach not only the message of Jesus. In fact, I'm going to presume you kind of have that. But how would you teach the method of Jesus? How would we teach other people to make disciple-making the main thing? How would we lead a congregation? How would we teach our family members? Uh, how do you teach your circles of in, uh, influence? Where that, that Not only is it the message that we want to do, but it's also the method. And so I'm going to presume a few things. The first thing I'm presume is that most of you are in some sort of position of influence. And you're here because you want to get a good theology of the method of disciple-making of Jesus. So we're going to do a little bit of theology, but I'm also going to assume that you um, are probably already in the process of doing something. So I want to give you some practical. I want to give you a little bit of experience that I've had. I want to talk to you about how our church, the journey that my church is on right now, to become a disciple-making church and to make disciple-making the main thing. And as I give you the practicals, I'm just very aware of the fact that... um, most of our practices are contextual, so what works in my context might not be as effective in your context. But let me give you some ideas. Let's take the ideas, then you go see what you can do with them, make them better, and when you've made them better, you let me know what that looks like. I'm going to start with this. I do think that the number one, the, the most important issue in teaching disciple-making is getting clarity on what we're talking about. So I've been um, interested in making discipleship the main thing for a number of years, and here's what I know. I know that pretty much everyone in the last five or ten years has used the language of disciple-making. Not everybody does. Every church now is about discipleship, and usually when we say the word, we can mean all sorts of things. And so the, the, very, the starting point is to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about discipleship. And I'm going to say, really, it sort of boils down to a couple of things. The disciple-making, discipleship, is a process and a product. 
And really, we want to sort of focus on both of those for just a moment. So when we talk about disciple making in the life of Jesus, we're talking about a process, not just a product. That is, Jesus made disciples relationally. I'm going to talk about that for a few minutes because what's happened over the last uh, really 150 years or so in the West is there's been a major shift in how we think about education. And if, you, uh, if you've done a lot of work in education, you'll know what I'm talking about. But for really for millennia, for two and a half millennia in the West, most education was done relationally. It's only been in recent decades that we've really kind of gotten away from a relational style of education. Let me give you a couple of examples. In fact, I'm going to give you several and some from the scriptures. In uh, ancient Israel, a father's job was to teach his son. It was relational. Think apprenticeship. So that's why, for example, that most bakers are the sons of bakers and the grandsons of bakers and the fathers of bakers. That typically speaking, education was done in the relational context of a father and a son, if you're male. If you're female, it was done in the context of a mother and a daughter. And so if you had a mother who had a certain set of gifts, the daughter would have that set of gifts. The granddaughter would. The great-grandparent also had that. So most of education way back there, it was just done relationally. In fact, if you can sort of just fancy enough to think back on even America a hundred years ago, when we were much more rural, it was not uncommon for most guys to take up the professions of their fathers and most women to live like their mothers because you grew up watching dad. He was the guy who led you. you. You grew up helping mom out. And so for most of human history, education was done relationally. And in those contexts, to talk, to talk about disciple-making wasn't a real imaginative strain for people. They already knew what you were talking about. That's, that's all they ever did. So if you were a smithy, if you're a blacksmith, for example, if you're a blacksmith, you always had two or three apprentices. And what were they going to do? They're going to become blacksmiths. And they always had two or three apprentices. This goes back for millennia. This is the way it was done for millennia. So, so let me give you an example of this. When we think about rabbis, so by the time we get to the second and third century before Jesus and the rabbinic traditions now have begun to develop and the, the schools of the rabbis have begun to develop, don't think of a school of a rabbi as a classroom setting like this one. It really wasn't. By the time a student had really matured into the older teenage years and I'm going to talk about it from a male perspective because most of the students were males in the rabbinic schools. In fact, as far as we know, all of them were. It was one rabbi who would have four or five students. And those four or five students would live with the rabbi, walk with the rabbi, eat with the rabbi. Everything the rabbi did, that's what they did. And so Paul learned from a rabbi, remember? He studied at the foot of Gamaliel. It doesn't mean that Paul was one of a hundred classmates who might have met Gamaliel at one point or another. Paul most likely knew everything there was to know about Gamaliel. He knew what he sounded like when he coughed. He knew what he sounded like when he passed gas. He knew what he sounded like when he kissed his wife. He knew everything there was to know about Gamaliel. They just lived together. And ask yourself the question, what does that do for a young man or a young woman to have that kind of intense relationship with someone who is already down the road that you want to travel? And the answer is, it's phenomenal what that does. When we get to uh, Hellenistic education, think about Socrates for a moment. What does Socrates do? Socrates does not just open up a big school and he gives lectures and he hopes people come and they pay their way and uh, then he grades them at the end and he might see them and he might not. Socrates gathers a group of young men And all they do is they spend life together. That's all they do. They go down, they sit in the uh, stoa of, uh, in fact, we know which stoa they sat in in Athens. They would sit there and Socrates would say, hey, look over there. And he'd start talking about this thing over here. And they would have a dialogue together. In fact, Socrates was so effective, you'll recall, he has to poison himself because the Athenians find him a great threat. And by the way, a lot of our schools really, they're they're, they're not rich enough to threaten anybody. I mean, they're not intense enough. Socrates is forced to poison himself because he's changing these lives through this intensity. By the way, who is one of his leading students? Plato, right? And Plato does the same thing. And who is Plato's leading student but Aristotle who founds a school? What is Aristotle's school's name? Do you remember? It was a school of the peripatetics. What does that mean? It's a Greek word that means the guys who walk around. That's a fascinating term because this is what Aristotle does. He just has a group of guys 
So you remember the old Peanuts comic strip where there's a, who's the guy that has a cloud of dust falling on him everywhere? Pigpen. Thank you. Yeah. So Aristotle's just pigpen. He walks around and he's got like five guys following him and everything he says, they write it down. They commit it to memory because they want to be just like him. What I'm telling you is that's how education was done. That was just a standard way of doing education through an apprentice or a discipling model. Now, here comes Jesus who uses the word disciple just many, many, many times. In the Gospels, according to, uh, according to my uh, Olive Tree uh, website, I looked it up in the New International Version, Variations of the Form Disciple in the NIV, 1984 version, because that's the last time I bothered to check. The, some version of the word disciple appears 297 times in the New Testament. 297 times. By the way, just as a nice little com- uh, comparison, how, do you remember how many times the word Christian appears in the New Testament? Three times. It appears three times. By the way, we're not to be ashamed of the word Christian. We should be proud of it. But it is fascinating to me that the preferred term for many of us is the term Christian, but the preferred term in Scripture is the word disciple. This is why I think it matters. It matters because when I use the word Christian, after 2,000 years... A lot of us, including myself, think of a practitioner of a certain kind of religion. That's what we think of. He's a Christian, and what we mean by that is, yeah, he, he's a practitioner of this religion. That's fine. I'm not against it. I'm for it. But how much richer is it to say he's an apprentice of Jesus? So what if we, instead of translating the word disciple, what if we just translated apprentice? And we just said, oh, this guy, David Roadcup. Again, I can't say enough about him. I love the man. You, when, he's probably a practitioner of a certain religion, right? I guess he is. But he, you can look at him and see this man is an apprentice of Jesus. Like he's learning how to be a human by just walking behind Jesus. And so what I want you to see is that if we're going to teach disciple-making, we have to get clarity about what it means. And so one of the things we want to say is that there's a real process here that has to be articulated. Let's look at Jesus. In fact, uh, it might be helpful to have, uh, I think there's a re- kind of a recording question here about how we do this. I was going to ask different people to read text, um, but I think it, it doesn't come up very clearly on the recorder. So let me just sort of make quick reference. Think, of for, for, think for just a moment about how Jesus chooses to use a process to make disciples. Just think about how Jesus does it. So I've said he, he selects 12 guys and he invests his life in their lives. But listen to some of the texts. First, let's go back to Mark chapter 3 where Jesus calls the 12. When he calls the 12, you remember it's just before that, that controversy over by whose power he casts out demons. He calls the 12 and he says in Mark chapter 3, uh, about verse 14 or so, he calls them to do three things, to be with him, to preach, and then to drive out demons. And he names them as he calls them. In fact, you remember, he sort of does a bait and switch on, uh, on Simon's name. He calls him Peter. It's fascinating because as soon as Jesus changes his name to Peter, Jesus starts talking about petrodes soil or stony soil. So he, he says about Simon, we're going to call him Rocky. And then in the very next chapter, he says, you know, there's such a thing as Rocky soil. Watch, it'll always fall away at the end. And, and then when we get to Mark 14, what happens? Peter, exact same language, he falls away. And so Jesus is up to something, even in the naming. But we see that Jesus selects 12. And it's worth noting again, he didn't select 28. He didn't select 190. He didn't select 7,000. Jesus was okay not selecting guys who lived over in North Africa. He was okay not selecting guys who lived in uh, Illyricum. He was fine not selecting guys who lived in Persia. He just said, no, give me 12. Just give me 12. And by the way, one of them didn't make it. Just give me 12. And then watch what Jesus does. I'm just going to do some bullet points here. From the very beginning, when he calls them, he tells them what they're going to do. So you remember this. Back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls Simon, again, Peter, and he calls his brother. And what's he say? Come follow me. just, Just listen. These are the very first words that Jesus says to these guys. Come follow me and I will do what? What's he say? Yeah, and I'm not going to lead you to the point that you can go catch others. I mean, the opening words out of Jesus' mouth are, before this is done, you're going to be bringing other people in. I just think it's a real fascinating thing that Jesus has very 
clear purposes from the beginning. He makes it obvious what he's up to. You know, he doesn't trick people into a relationship. Uh, he doesn't wait to the end and then say at the end, hey, I'd really like for you to do what I've been doing. I'd like for you to go out there. From the very get-go, he says, if you'll follow me, I'll teach you how to bring other people. And so everything Jesus does from that point forward is bringing guys to the point where they can bring others to the kingdom. So what does Jesus do? <clears throat> he knows his disciples. Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. This is the text where Jesus, actually towards the end of Mark chapter 1 and end of chapter 2, Mark goes and, uh, Jesus goes and, you remember Simon Peter's mother-in-law is, uh, she's sick. She's in bed. And Peter goes in, uh, Jesus goes in. I don't know why I keep saying Peter. I keep saying Peter because every time I think of that text, I think about um, the house of Peter, which is there still in Capernaum. It's just a fascinating place to go. So Jesus goes in and he raises right. He, he knows Peter's family. He's involved in Peter's family, which is a fascinating thing. Notice Jesus is not like, um, you're in my class. I think I know Peter. I don't really know his last name, but yeah, I think he comes to my program some. Jesus is so involved in this man's life that he's touching his mother-in-law which is a pretty um, significant thing to do in the social world of Jesus. We have Jesus eating dinners with others. You remember he goes down and he eats at the home of Levi, Matthew? He's eating dinner with them. He's in their homes. In fact, Jesus gets accused, if you recall, of just being a party animal. That every time you turn around, Jesus is having another meal with somebody. Jesus is involved in their lives socially around the table, which, again, not only is that important today, perhaps it's even more important in Jesus' day. Because fellowship around a meal in Jesus' day was a much more intimate experience than it is for us. Uh, and it's, it's, it can be intimate for us, but for Jesus' day, you remember, everybody dips out of a common bowl. Generally speaking, you're eating with your hands. You're literally sharing the same food. And Jesus is doing this with these guys. He's just investing his life in them. Notice how Jesus teaches them to pray. Don't miss Luke chapter 11, the first few verses. Jesus has taken the disciples out. He's praying, and what do they say? Lord, now teach us to do that. So again, it's not just that Jesus says, I want you to go to a class, and I hope you learn something, and you know, I'll see you when you get to heaven. He's deeply involved in their lives, teaching them the spiritual disciplines, teaching them how to stay in communication with the Father. We have Jesus modeling the scriptures for them. And so Jesus routinely interprets the Scripture and then embodies the Scripture. So I'm thinking of the example of Jesus as he passes through the grain fields. He gets into controversies, and Jesus begins to explain to the Pharisees, no, 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 let me tell you what the Scriptures really mean here. And the whole time he's doing this, his disciples are watching him. They're learning how to do it. And again, it's important that Jesus teaches them, but for my purposes, it's more important that Jesus does it somewhat obliquely. That he really just says, watch me live life. And so he's, his real teaching moment is with the Pharisees. But he allows the disciples to be part of that. They're watching. They're learning with him what this looks like. We have Jesus um, pulling a few of them out and taking them to the, some very intensive moments. So he goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And he pulls just a handful of them up there so they can actually experience ministry with them. One of my favorite texts is in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes. You remember what he first says? He says, now how, how, many, uh, how, many, how much food we have out there? And someone explains. He says, you, you give them something to eat. And they're like, Lord, what is this? There's 5,000 guys out here. You want us to feed them? Jesus just inviting them. You, you solve the problem. Now I'm, I'm handing the problem over to you. In a sense, again, he's training them to do ministry. In fact, on two different occasions in the Gospels, two in Luke's Gospel at least, he sends them out and says, now I want you to go do some preaching and then come back and tell me how it goes. I want you to go out there. I want you to learn how to do this. So what's happening is Jesus' process of making disciples is all relational. And this is the big change for a lot of our churches, by the way. I'll come back to it in a moment. But I really do think the big change for a lot of our churches is that, uh, at least here in the U.S., in the West, for a lot of us, we do church the way our culture does everything else. I'm the teacher. You're the student. I'm the player. You're the fan. I get up and I I play the game. And if you like the game, you applaud and you give me a good paycheck. One of my... um, favorite guys at this conference anywhere really is Jim Putman, 
who's just done a fantastic work in Post Falls, Idaho. And every time Jim speaks, like every th third sentence Jim says, I think to myself, I'm just not very smart. Because every time he speaks, I think, that is brilliant. What that man just said is brilliant. Putman's book, uh, Church is a Team Sport, starts out by sort of saying, okay, well, as a coach, is it your job as a coach? Jim, you know, was a professional wrestler, not, not the entertaining kind, the other kind, the non-entertaining kind. <laughs> Um, and, and by the way, if he didn't get his face busted up a hundred times, then he, I, can't, I hate to think he was born that ugly. That he, but, um, he, You're being recorded. Uh, I'm being recorded. Yeah, well, let's just pray he doesn't listen to this. Um, but Jim's like, okay, what do I do? You know, every time we have a, 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 a meet, wrestling match, I don't get out there and play for those guys. I don't go out there and wrestle for them. My job as a coach is to equip them so they can go out there and do it. And I'm going to tell you something. If you're a good coach, when, how often do you see your players? So we have the uh, women's basketball coach at uh, Middle Tennessee State University. The largest university in Tennessee is one of my members. And it's a winning team. They do, they're, they're really good. Uh, coach uh, Rick Insel, and, and I, I interviewed him. He, he helped us with our Easter sermon this past week because he's such a winner, and he's, he's so inspirational. He's just the guy, every time he speaks, it's like, oh, I want more. Tell me more. So we recorded some stuff and played it. But I asked uh, Coach Insel, I said, tell me, about the, tell me what you do with your players. He said, what we do on the court is secondary to my job as a coach. He says, what I usually do is I'm helping them with the crisis they have in, with their mom or their dad. I'm deeply involved in their relationships when, they're, when they break up with their boyfriends and they're hurt. Some of them have other problems. He says, that's what I spend my time on. He said, on the court, we spend some time on that too. I want you to see that's how Jesus did disciple making. That he was just loving these guys. And he was letting them live their life with them. And he was showing them this is what it means to be God-like. This is, this is the incarnation right here in front of you. So we see Jesus doing this. Then, and all this, by the way, 297 times is called making disciples. Now, if all that's in the back of your head, that's disciple-making, then listen to this text again, Matthew 28, where Jesus says, now you go make disciples of all nations. What do you think the disciples heard? I mean, imagine that the disciples said, okay, now it's our turn. Let's go up. We'll set up a whole lot of classes and get 440 people sitting out there. We'll have one guy play the game. The rest of us will watch. We'll make sure that we have all these programs. I mean, we'll have a program for every conceivable thing. They didn't think that way. If you want to know why the egg hatched and an eagle flew out, it's because for 37 days, in Collins's case, for three years in the Gospels' case, Jesus was pouring his life into their life. And when the egg cracked, the eagle flew. So I'm going to make the case in just a moment that we're in a desperate need to return to Jesus' method of disciple making. But I say, first, it's a process. And the process I want to encourage, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to talk a little bit about some of the objections we have, but I really want to say if we're not committed to the method of Jesus... I'm not sure we'll survive. I'm just not sure we'll survive, at least not in this culture, because this culture is eating us up. And it's eating us up because I do think for a lot of us, we now believe that if I get a kid, you know, two hours a week, that's pretty much going to handle everything. You know that's not true, don't you? It's not, even, it's not true for the adults. It's not true for the teens. It's not true for anybody anymore. This culture is eating us alive. And so if we're not really pouring ourselves in the lives of the next generation, I'm not sure they stand any chance anymore. So I want to suggest we think through, again, how we build churches so that not only the message of Jesus is respected, but the method of Jesus as well. But I say it's a process. It's also a product. And so what Jesus does is he pours himself into the lives of these guys because he wants a certain result. And this is where clarity, again, really helps us. What is it to be a follower of Jesus. And um, there's a lot of us, we, we, we could, we, uh, there's a lot of theology that probably should go in here, but because David did so much of that, and if you didn't, if you didn't get David Roadcup's presentation, I just encourage you to go back and listen to that. I'm not going to spend much time on that. But I'm going to say this. We need real clarity ourselves in what it looks like to be a disciple of, of Yeshua Hash, uh, Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah. What does it look like? What's a win? 
So this is one of the big questions that um, Putman helped me with early on. In fact, I met with one of Putman's guys about five or six years ago. I, I started reading Putman's works and, and Bobby Harrington as well. And I fell in love with it. It's just such good, so clear. So I went to, uh, I don't remember where I went. I went out west and I met with Putman and some of his guys. They were gracious to me. And uh, first I had to go through one. I don't remember who it was now. Maybe it was Avery. I don't remember who it was. But I sit down with one of them and we're going to have a cup of coffee. And he says to me, he says, okay, so um, first question, he says, we didn't say hello. Like it was, it was almost, I was, I, honestly, I was insulted by it. And it's kind of hard to insult me, but I felt kind of insulted because we sit down and he says, okay, it was like looking at his watch, like, let's, you know, come on. And um, it, when I tell you the story, you'll know why that's a cool thing. He says, what's a score at your church? What's a score? And I was like, uh, what's a score? And I was kind of stumbling around and all, and he's like, hey, man, I don't have much time. <laughs> and I was like, come on, man, I'm paying for your coffee. Give me some time here. But, but, but I'm telling you what he's, what he's asking is, if you don't even know what a score is, why are you, why are you wasting my time? By the way, I, I'm going to tell you a moment. I've discipled two English guys. I've been discipling for about six years. One of them's, they come over, the, the longest you can stay is three months. They'll both be here three months every year. And I got one of them staying with me, leaves next week. And uh, I was over, we, uh, because I'm discipling, we spend a lot of time together. And I was over at his house a couple of years ago in the south of England. And he's like, hey, uh, you want to watch a cricket game with me? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I've never seen cricket. And I sat through probably 20 minutes of it. And listen, if you like cricket or you play cricket, just forgive everything I'm about to say. (laughs) It was the weirdest, most, it was like the worst sport I've ever seen. First of all, I have no idea what they're trying to do out there. And there's guys wearing suits. I mean, like ties and suits. So I know it's not a sport because, you know. (laughs) Nobody ever bleeds, so it can't possibly be anything that I would consider a sport. And so they're all out there, and they're looking, they look to me like they just got up from high tea. And they walked out on the field, and some guy winds up. You've seen it, right? He winds up, and all this, and he goes, and he just throws a ball on the ground. And the audience, the, hey, and the audience who's all wearing neckties go like this. And it goes for three days. And it's like, what are they doing out there? And, I, and I'm asking this guy to explain this sport to me. I never figured it out. But I, I do know why I didn't like it, because I didn't know what a score was. I had no idea what they were doing. So when uh, one of Putman's guys asked me, what's a score at your church, and I'm stumbling around, he's saying the same thing. So what, what are the scores that we normally think of? You know, we think attendance. Attendance is a big one for your church. Everybody asks it. Now, now we know. Most of us are polite enough not to ask that question, but we're going to find the answer to it one way or the other. So, like I'll say, you know, I know if I met you and you're a pastor at a church, I'm not going to say how many go to your church because I know that I'm not supposed to say that anymore. But I might say something like, how many elders do you have? And now I'm going to do the math. Okay, you probably got, yeah. Uh, so that's the score for a lot of us. Uh, we have a scoreboard. Maybe it has to do with like our building. I don't know. Whatever your score is. Putman says, as he starts his book, you know, when I figured out what a score is, it's when people trust and follow Jesus. When their lives are changed and they're fully committed to Jesus. That, that's a score for us. So I'm sitting there with this guy. That's his first thing is, what's a score? And I can't answer it. I can see he's looking at his watch. He's about to get up. Then his second question to me, he says, now tell me before we go get any further. This, we're like only two minutes into the, our time together. I, I thought I bought an hour with that cup of coffee. Because it's like a $4 cup. So I'm a, he said, I'm two minutes into it, he says to me, now, who are you personally discipling? And I said, well, right now, nobody. I'm, and he says, hey, dude, I'm out of here. And he stands up and starts walking off. And honestly, it's like, yeah, you, I've got a soul. Be nice to me. Don't do this. And I physically got up and ran and chased him down and grabbed him and said, come back and talk to me. He said, look, if you're not serious about doing this, don't waste my time. I said, I am serious, but I have no idea what I'm doing. And then, by the way, we had a fantastic conversation. And you think I ever forgot it? I never forgot it. So I'm not recommending you walk out on people if they don't get what you're saying. But they won't forget it if you do. It's a memorable way to do it. Uh, So what he's asking the question, this is a question that really has to be answered, is what's it going to look like when you win? What does it look like when somebody's a disciple? So if you know Putman's work... um, they use Matthew 4.19 as their text. A, a disciple is someone who has uh, been called by Jesus, has joined Jesus, is being transformed by Jesus, and then is on Jesus' mission. 
Come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Bobby Harrington has published books in which Bobby says, you know, if you're looking for sort of the shortest, quickest answer to what a disciple is, Bobby says it's someone who trusts and follows Jesus. Someone who trusts and follows Jesus. You, you figure that out. The theology's out there. The biblical text is there. Figure it out. But I'm going to say this. If we don't have a real clear image of what it looks like to be Jesus, then it's, it's likely we're not going to be able to teach people how to be disciples. So you get that, right? I would say this, and this is just um, kind of a, a, a pre- count this as preventative medicine here. Don't stop. Don't stop at the Jesus of the, of the crucifixion. Don't stop there. Because after that, he was raised from the dead, and now he sits on the right hand of the throne of God, and now he's Lord. And so don't, don't be tempted to think that Jesus, his only thing was um, this earthly ministry of uh, doing nice things for people and making sure that people had a good meal and so forth. Don't stop there. Because it's really tempting for us to reduce the work of Jesus um, to mere social justice. I'm for social justice, but not mere social justice. That Jesus is now still doing something. And it's called serving as Lord and Master of the Universe. He's still doing something. And so we're following that Jesus too. We follow the pre-existent Jesus, the one who became incarnate. We follow the one who lived here on earth. And now we follow the one who has been crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not just one of those three, but all of it. So we get clarity on the process. We get clarity on the product. Let me just say that I've talked about process. Let me just say this is not new. Uh, I was at an event the other night and... and, and, um, I was asked the question, uh, I was on a little panel, we were asked the question, is disciple making a fad? Is it a fad? And the answer I tried to give, I'll say this, but I, I want to give you a, another perspective in just a moment, is no, it, the language might be faddish, it might be a trend. I think our commitment to it might be faddish. By the way, I, I think you'd be okay with my quoting him, but Putman was also there. And uh, his answer was, yeah, it's a fad. He said, it's a total fad. And he says, let me tell you when it'll stop. Tony, you were there, I think. If I get it wrong, you can tell me. He said, when everybody who's after church growth figures out that they're not really committed to making disciples, it'll stop. But if you're committed to doing it because it's the right thing to do and because that's what Jesus did and because it changes lives, well, now that won't stop. But for those of you who come to disciple making because you think this might get me bigger numbers, a bigger check, and a bigger name for myself, then yeah, in a couple of years, you'll be on to the next thing. So I'm arguing it's not new. Disciple making is the standard way that all of us really become new people. So think of this. Moses disciples Joshua, right? Elijah disciples Elisha. We have... um, Uh, In the New Testament, Jesus discipling Peter, Paul discipling Titus and Timothy. You remember Peter says in 1 Peter about Mark, he's my son. Peter disciples Mark. Think about this. John, who eventually, best we can tell, ends up in Ephesus. John disciples whom? Papias and Polycarp, two of the uh, the most important early second century names in Christian history. They are personally discipled by John. Polycarp personally disciples like the first Orthodox thinker, Irenaeus. He disciples Irenaeus. Irenaeus goes out and disciples Tertullian and Cyprian. Remember, they're not just putting them in a classroom. They didn't just go to their class. They invested in their lives and changed their lives. This is just standard how it's done. So if I'm going to teach disciple-making, I'm going to get clarity that we're talking about a process that is relational. Uh, and you, You've heard it described a hundred ways already this week. But it's life on life if you want to. It's relational. And by relational, we mean not programmatic, not really programmatic. Programs can help you do this. But in the end, if all you have is a program, you just swapped out one thing for something else. So uh, I think one of the warnings that I have for you, in, if you're transitioning a church, which I'm in the process of doing, is don't switch out your uh, whatever, your other program, your small group program for a disciple-making program, if it's just another program. Your small group program is probably just as good as your disciple-making program is going to be. And you won't make anybody mad if you just leave it right there. 
But if you change that one program for another, it's probably not going to be any more effective, and now you've got a bunch of mad people. So if all you're looking for is I'm going to get a new program because, uh, you know, because that's what they're doing on Sun Life, I want to do what they do now, or I want to do what the you know, Bonhoeffer Project does, if that's all you're looking for, you're probably better off just doing what you're doing, seriously. Because I, I will say this, we're in the process of transitioning a church. <laughs> we're a good-sized church, not, down, not far down the road from here, uh, 50 miles away, 40 or whatever. And so far, God's been good to us. Uh, we, we've not had a lot of fist fights over the transitions we're going through. Um, we, I don't, we've not lost many people. We, we don't, you know, I've, got a, I've got an elder and another staff member sitting right over here. It's really it's been kind of peaceful for us. But I do know this. If we move too quickly, then, then instead of getting disciples, we just see who really wasn't a disciple because the fist fights break out. So ask yourself the question, what really am I trying to teach? If I'm just trying to teach another program, just keep the program you have. But if you're really trying to teach people how to get into the lives of someone else and change them to look like Jesus, there's a good chance you don't even need a program for that. This is one of the coolest things. If you're working for a church that's program-based or it's a kind of an attractional model, or if you're working for a ministry, so you're a youth pastor, a youth minister, and you're working and, 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 and you inherited a model and you, you've got the same... Um, sense that I have that the model we have is not going to carry us much further. If you have that, and then you're worried, I don't know if I can convince my board. I'm not sure I can convince my senior pastor. I don't know if I can convince my elders to make these changes. The good news is you probably don't have to. Like even if you're in a real stodgy, strict, kind of sectarian type environment, most of them are okay if you pick three or four people and just start discipling them. You don't have to ask anybody. most, Most leadership teams aren't going to care. They're not going to say, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. I mean, if, they're do- if they stop that, you're just going to have to leave that church probably. I mean, really, that's a really sick, dysfunctional church. So if you're leading a smaller church or even a larger church and you just say to yourself, all right, I want to do this, but I don't know how to change my whole church, you know where you start? Find three or four or six, whatever your number is. I, I do think there's kind of a size limit. Jesus picks 12. I usually like three or four. And just start doing it. I mean, you can do it without anybody's permission. God gave you permission already. Jesus does it. You can do it. You don't have to have a program for that. You don't even have to preach on it. You don't have to teach on it. Just start doing it. And honestly, as you start to do it, you start to see lives around you being changed. And you know what people will ask you? They'll say, wow, I would like to be part of that. I got a guy right now, in fact, uh, this happens pretty often. I got a guy right now banging on the door of my life saying, will you disciple me? Because he's been hanging out with some other guys I've been discipling. Will you disciple me? And I said, right now I'm maxed out. But I, I feel bad saying that. I'm going to try to figure something out. But it's not because I got him and preached a sermon that was so convicting that he came down on his knees, you know, through cut glass, begging me, please take me on. It's because he sees how cool it is. He sees lives being changed. I didn't ask anybody's permission. Again, with some of the leaders that are sitting here, they probably don't even know who I'm discipling right now. Ray might, because we've talked a whole lot about this. You can just start doing it. So I am suggesting this. Get clarity in your head about the process and the product. And the product is, uh, again, I'm going to just summarize what David Rokup said. The product is looking like Jesus, right? And I like like Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you why I like that, because I said it again. I want to make sure that we don't reduce Jesus to three years. I just want to re- always make sure we don't do that. That we realize that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 9? He is God. And I, w- I want to make sure that we, that we don't just reduce him to the, the three years of ministry he did in, 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 in the land of Israel. And I also want to make sure that we realize now he is reigning on the throne of God and will return as a judge. Let's keep the whole picture of Jesus. So, now, once we've done that, how do we teach it? I'm watching our time back here. That clock, by the way, says it's 6.30, which is a real, um, it messes a guy like me up. Okay, so if I'm going to teach it, I do think there's some things that will help. And so let me give you some practical things that we've done at our church that have been enormously helpful to me. First, I personally have begun to disciple people. I'm going to say this. I'm back with, I think it was Avery that said it. If you're not doing it, then, um, man... Just, it's over. The game's over. If you're not personally discipling people, then, then what are you doing? 
Who, why are you going to ask someone else to do that which you won't do? And, I, and, I, and listen, we have a big church. My church is 70 years old, and we have 100 and something ministries. I don't even know how many ministries we have. We have a clogging ministry. Well, up until recently, we have a karate ministry. I have no idea what all ministries we have out there. I, I'd be embarrassed to tell you what all we have. And every single one of them thinks that if I don't come, I'm not a good preacher. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm a, a bad person. If I don't come to their parties and their committee meetings, I can't, like, if I work 70 hours, I'm not making this up. It's a short week for me. In addition to that, now, I've decided I have to disciple these guys and get involved in their lives. And I'm just going to say, the thought is like, no, please, Jesus, don't make me do this. And you may be feeling the same thing. But I'm going to say, the best time I spend in ministry is not when I go to the karate ministry's annual Christmas party. Who has it? Why do we even... Listen, you know who comes to our karate ministry, by the way? It's, we have like a... Uh, there's a home for um, boys who are w- going to go to prison when they're 18, but they're not quite 18 yet, and it's right down the road from us. We're teaching them to do karate. It's like, what is this, man? I might as well give them AR-15s while we're at it anyway. That's, that's, who we're, that's who goes to our ministry. My best time is not the time I spend at that party. My best time is the time I spend with my guys. So whatever you're doing, if you're not discipling people, stop there and start discipling. And if it doesn't work the first time, as David said in his presentation, then just keep doing it. And uh, again, there's so many resources here on how to do that. I like the, because I've, I've been involved in real life ministries, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. I like their acronym. The first one they used, which was FAT, then they added the R. But I just like FAT. I pick guys who are faithful, available, and teachable. Faith, fat. Faith, you got that? I'll write that up. They're faithful. They're available. Da, 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 and they're teachable. Da, da, da. There you go. Fat. Let me tell you why that matters. Because if I, when I do my, the last group I just did, the group I just finished, besides my English guys that are st- I'm still doing, we had to meet at the, cra- I mean, we met early, 5.30 sometimes in the morning. And here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to give like every, a, a year and a half, 5.30 meetings to guys who aren't going to show up. And if they're not that serious about it, I, like it's a big deal to me. I'm pouring myself into this. Before it's over with, we're going to be pretty tight with each other. And I don't want to do that to somebody who's not faithful. If they don't really care, they're not really serious about it, they're not really available, and if they don't want to learn, if they already know everything, it's not time. Maybe God will open up a door for them later. But pick some guys, some men or women. It needs to be same sex, I mean same gender. If you're seriously discipling men, you're not going to do that with women unless it's your wife or your daughter. And women, it's the same thing. I'm just saying this to your women. The last thing you want is to start discipling some guy you're not married to or it's not your son. Um, it, it will end in a disaster for you. So pick, pick individuals. I, I have to use my Bible on my phone, and I keep getting text messages, so we're going to just not use the Bible anymore because this is so annoying. <laughs> if, if you have to pick, if you have to pick. My phone is. Yeah, my phone's annoying. That phone is annoying. So pick some people, make a commitment, uh, a year, two-year commitment, and start pouring into them. So let me tell you about a couple of groups I've done. The group I just finished, I asked three guys, young guys, they're all millennials. And I said to them, hey, I, I, I set them down. I said, this is what I want to do. I not only want to help you become like Jesus, but we're going to try our best to live life together. And then I said this. I said, at the end of our time together, I want you to be leaders. That's what I want. And we're going to work our way there. And by the way, I'm really excited about this because the three guys, two of them have quit their jobs and are becoming church planters. Two of the three I just finished. The other one, at a minute we can get him. But his wife's pregnant. She's about to have a baby. They're a little dis- they're just not ready quite yet. But spiritually, these guys are on, they're on fire. And I've watched one of them, my favorite one. Well, I shouldn't say my favorite. But my favorite one from the standpoint of where he was to where he is. Let's put it that way because they may listen to this, but it's Russell, so Russell Rigsby. Russell Rigsby tells me a story, and I'm recording, and he probably, Russell, you just have to forgive me for telling this story. Russell, Russell's a pagan. He was a, I mean, a total pagan. And he's telling me all these things about, just a few years ago, he was a pagan. You know, the time he woke up 180 miles from his house on an early morning, totally buck, buck, naked, in someone's drained swimming pool. 
and he, has, he doesn't know what state he's in. He doesn't know why he has no clothes. He'd been drunk the night before with a bunch of frat buddies and all that. I mean, it was a world's worst story. And this guy comes to Jesus, and today he's planting a church right on the middle of the university where he got his degree, and he's going to do a fantastic, awesome job. So here's what I did. I just called Russell. I saw it, man. I, 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 I don't always call him, but this one I called. This guy's going to be an awesome church planter. So for a year and a half, I just, I just lived life with them. I did the same as, as David did. We met weekly. They've been in my home. I've been in their home. When I travel, I take them with me. So I, if I go speak someplace, I say, hey, you guys come with me. We, we go backpacking together. We just, we just tried to live together and love each other. Now, as we got further along, I would say to Russell, hey, I want you to really learn to be bold. Because he's, he's, Russell is, um, I don't know how to describe him. He's kind of fearless. So I told him that I want him to go knock doors because I thought if you'll knock doors, I know you'll do anything. Last I heard, and I'm not making this up, Russell alone has knocked on 11,000 doors inviting people to Jesus in our area because he took me seriously. He didn't know you didn't have to do that. I mean, nobody ever told him that. We don't knock doors. It was a joke. I can't believe he actually did it. He went out. He's knocked on 11,000 doors. And the... So that's, that's what I've done. I've had several other groups. I've talked about the English guys. I've got one other story I want to tell you about. I'm going to hold that one. So first, start discipling. You do it. And if you're pastoring a church or if you're a youth pastor or if you're in some, leading some ministry, you know what I would do? I would find people that can help you with your ministry, that you can bequeath your ministry to. So one of the things we say to our staff is, look, we need to be too deep everywhere. We need, who's going to take your job when you leave? Because you're going to leave, or we're going to send you somewhere, or something's going to come up. Go too deep and start discipling. Uh, by the way, it can be a challenge at some point. So that's the first thing I'd do. Model what you want to be. The second thing I would do is that I would make sure that you find um, a team of people who share your vision. This is especially true. If you're leading a church, if you're pastoring a church, it really matters that you find a team. It doesn't have to be a big team, but you need a team of people who share your vision. And I'm going to tell you why. Anytime you try to transition any organization, churches included, it is the most discouraging thing you'll ever do. It's indescribable how, indis- how discouraging it can be when you're trying to transition a church. How many people are going to be opposed to you, sometimes on things you never thought even mattered, but to them it was sacred, um, how hard it is to get people to change what they've been doing for years and years. It's so discouraging at times. And what you're going to have to have are allies, people who are with you on it, people that you, when you're finally, you know, just I can't do any more, you know it's, gonna, it's still there because these people believe in this too. They share this vision with me. So if I were you and you're doing this, if you're married, you're a woman, ask your husband, would you disciple the husbands? I'll disciple the wives. Get, get somebody to share it with you. So you're not the only person. Uh, I just think that that camaraderie matters. If, let me put this one in. If you're, if you're leading a church or a ministry and you're going to try to persuade them to make disciple-making the main thing, let me throw this in. I've learned this um, to be true in my ministry at least. Sell the problem before you sell the solution. Most people don't care about your solution, but they care about the problem. We, raised, uh, we were trying to raise $1.6 million to do disciple-making and church planting and some other things. This was back about five years ago. And I was trying to think, how do I could persuade a church to give $1.6 million for something that's not a building? And um, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I'm not going to sell disciple-making and church planting. I'm going to sell what's going wrong in the world today. So we talked a lot about secularism and the rise of paganism in America. We talked about the fact that we're losing our own kids. And I just asked the question over and over again, are you okay with what's going on in this world? If you are, just keep doing everything exactly as you are. Just keep, just keep this same route. If you like the results you're getting, keep doing exactly what you're doing. But if you don't like what's happening, let's do something different. And by the time we had whetted the appetite that we're not okay with what's going on around us, when we had our, um, our big fundraiser, we were trying to raise $1.6 million. We had our big fundraiser. We raised one day. Listen, this is how you know God was involved. We didn't get $1.6 million. We got $6.1 million. Not a single one of us saw it coming. I had no idea that kind of money was coming in. People gave wedding rings, more than one, 
Families gave their wedding rings. People sold properties. We had folks who were given 10% of their income from now to when Jesus comes back just to this. It was, uh, we had one young man who was 16, came from a kind of a poor family. He had spent his whole childhood raising money to buy his first car. Instead, he gives the money to make disciples and church planning. It was so crazy. But the reason they did it is not because I came in with this really cool program. Hey, now we're going to do this. The reason that is because we agreed that the problem matters and we have to do something. So sell the problem. Start by solving the problem. Most people don't care about your solution, but they do care about your problem. So I want to keep going. Whenever you get serious about this, get a coach. You can either spend 10 years making 100 mistakes and then get to a good workable plan, or you can just get somebody to get you there in one year and tell you all the mistakes you don't want to make. So when we really got serious about disciple-making, this, this is how I developed my relationship with Bobby. I hired Bobby Harrington. We hired him. Our church hired him as a coach for 18 months. And uh, Bobby worked behind the scenes. I'm not even sure. I, I'm pretty sure that my church has no idea how much Bobby Harrington changed who we are. But that was the, one of the smartest things we ever did. And in hindsight, we, we didn't pay him that much. But he was, worth a, he was worth a whole lot more than what we paid him. Because he's been down the road. He was able to come in. He helped us evaluate our systems. The first thing Bobby did, by the way, was he said, all right, I'm going to disciple you, David. So Bobby discipled me for 18 months. And, and as he discipled me, it just changed everything for me. I got it, having him disciple me. I mean, he's one of my heroes, if you haven't been able to figure that out. Um, but just having a coach is just a shortcut. I mean, it's, it, it, it cuts the time by four-fifths. It's such a good shortcut. Next, I should be listening. I should have written them down. Get in a network. You know, now there are so many networks available. TCM has courses. Uh, I've been talking to Dr. Twist about So They have programs now where they can help. They're working here in the U.S. You might associate them with Vienna, but they work here in the U.S. as well. They're offering certificates and degree programs and disciple-making, join a network. Get involved in people who do this. Find a tribe of people who are like us. Because, you know, knowledge is generally social. We, we learn by being with people who are like us. We learn by people who are sharing our values. So get in a network. You can walk down the halls here, and you can find 15 networks before you get to the end of a hall. So it's not like it's going to be hard to find. I was in uh, one of the network, in relational discipleship network, which is one of Putman's uh, organizations. That's why I know so much about them. When we got ready to plant a church, we hired Passion for Planting to come out because we thought, okay, we don't know how to plant a church. We'd never planted a church in our life. We had no idea how to do it. We thought, okay, we can do like six of them, fail, hurt a whole lot of people, or we can just pay the guys who already know how to do it to come down. By the way, they gave us a 500-point checklist. Is that right? Was it five? It's 500-point checklist. I can't. Like, it's a 60-page checklist of things you have to do. And we're like, oh, my goodness. Let me tell you, the first day we launched the church, we had 434 people. They not only now are running like 300-ish, they've planted their church. And that was only three years ago. So by, by, by just finding some guys who know what they're doing, can we get with you? Will you help us do this? And by the way, they didn't charge us. Nothing. It was just like the cheapest thing. It's the cheapest money we ever spent to save so many people's lives. So get in a network. Get with some people who know what they're doing. I would say this. Whatever you do, if you can make it reproducible, that's my next point, make it easy and reproducible. So if you, the more complicated you make something, the more elite it becomes, which is why evidently I'll never play cricket because it's only for elite people who wear suits. Um, here's the thing. Make it easy. It ought to be easy. So when your members ask, now, what are you talking about? Here's an answer. Find three guys and lead them to Jesus for the next year and a half. Just, it's easy. Just do it. Easy. One of the things that we did, we developed a tool. It's a bookmark. And uh, it's, it's one of those tools where anybody can sit down with any, anybody. Lost people, pagans can sit down, use this bookmark, and lead somebody to Jesus. Because we wanted something so easy that anybody could just start doing it. By the way, it's called Discovery Bible Study. If you go on our website at North Boulevard, you can get we, all of them for free. We'll send them to you if you want them. I should give you a contact. Oh, here we go. Yeah, Ray's got one with us. So Actually, I'll just leave this up here. So we, we put these out every four or five weeks, different ones, and have a huge stack of them. It's not like magic. It's just 
It's just easy. Any, you, don't, you, you and three people can sit down and do this with no preparation whatsoever. All you have to do is have a Bible and you have to be able to read. If you can do that, we've had lost people lead other people to Jesus using this tool. Literally. They sit down, they're, they're going through the Bible, teaching someone else the Bible. They're not even saved. And the guy says, yeah, I think I want to be baptized. We've literally had, had to baptize the guy who was getting ready to baptize the other guy so that he'd be baptized when he baptized them. I mean, it's really sweet because it's just that what we wanted to do. This tool is not magic. There's other, we, by the way, we took the tool from uh, Jerry Trousdale, who is one of the senior leaders of City Team. They will baptize. We've got a team right now, right now in Sierra Leone with them uh, from our church. They will baptize 10,000 people this year using this tool. Most of them, at least 50% of them, are Muslims. They'll baptize 100 imams this year in North Africa using this tool. So we just said, let's find something easy, reproducible. I'll just leave it up here. Can they have, can we leave that? Okay. And, um, yeah, so the, uh, uh, model what you want. Build a team of like-minded people. Get a coach. Join a network. Make it easy and reproducible. I've got several others, but let me just, I, I, I'm about to run out of time. Let me throw a few other things in. Um, I, I'm going to start wrapping it up. Let me say this. Allow some time for change to occur. You know, Jim Putman says, uh, Putman. Jim Collins, back to good to great, the business guy. Jim Collins says it takes seven years to affect a, a, a real change in an organization. We said we'll give ourselves ten. When we started making disciple-making the main thing, we set some benchmarks. We've passed all of our benchmarks. We're not happy. I mean, we're happy that we passed those. We'd like to do more. But we understand that it takes some time. Be okay with that. Just be okay. Give yourself seven years. Be generous to yourself. Give yourself ten years. I am going to say this. If you pastor a church and you're going to try to make this transition, I think it's unethical for you to do it if you won't make a commitment to stay at that church through the change. To me, it's unethical to take a church and say, hey, we're going to turn this whole thing, but I'm going to be watching in case some pretty girl walks up, uh, some other church and offers me more, I might leave. So when we started down our process of change, I don't know that I said this to leadership, but maybe I did. I'm pointing over here because here's one of my elders. But in, in my heart, I said, okay, I'm here. They're going to have to fire me. I'm not going to leave because I'm not going to take a church through a lot of radical transitions and walk out the door halfway through because somebody had a better offer. I don't, I don't think that's ethical. So if you're going to make a change, say, all right, seven or ten years, and I'm here. And I'm going to take every rock that gets thrown at me, and I'm also going to enjoy everything God does for us. And I'm going to tell you the power of this because when your church really takes this seriously, you're going to see things you've never seen before. You're going to see Acts 2 spring up before your very eyes. I've got two stories and I'm out of time. I've got like eight minutes for two stories. I'm going to say this. So back here in the back is, uh, well, no, he's not back there anymore. Oh, Ken, where did Ken go? He must have stepped out. Take, yeah, so Ken is an is a eighth degree black belt in Taekwondo or something like that. And uh, he's, he's joined us on staff. About a year and a half or so ago, my son, who is okay with me sharing some vague details of his story, my son was really struggling, seriously struggling. Um, I don't, I don't, it's his story, so I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail. But I can tell you his mother and I were heartbroken. And, um, and he was in trouble. I'm, and I'm talking about very serious and very deep trouble. We brought him home from school. We, we, we pulled him out of college, out of university, and brought him home. By the way, he went upstairs, and we didn't see him for three days. All the knives had been out of my house for years and other things. And when I brought him home, Ken, who does Taekwondo, that's his, been his thing for years, um, he asked me, can I take your son out to lunch? And I said, yeah, sure. And John came down, he went, and Ken said to John, Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker, Got a black belt in six months by doing Taekwondo every day. By the way, Ken trained Tony Robbins. He trained, he, he trained uh, 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 Vice President Joe Biden. He's trained like, he, he trained with Muhammad Ali. He's, he's trained with some big names. So he says to my son, if you'll give me five months and 29 days, I'll get you a black belt. And you'll be the fastest real black belt in the history of Taekwondo. My son's he's got nothing else to do. He, we, he says, yeah, sure. So uh, Ken starts discipling my son in Taekwondo two hours a day, every day. What I didn't know was he really wasn't doing Taekwondo. He was talking to him about Jesus, praying with him, pouring his life into my son's life. 
And I was starting to see some changes in my son's life, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. One day, Jonathan comes home and he says, Dad, I want to pray over you. Now, now, John would not mind my telling you that John had told me about six months before that, I will stay in church, I will be good, I won't mess up, but there cannot possibly be a God. I don't believe in him because he wouldn't let this happen to me. That's my son. He comes to me and says he wants to pray over me. I said, John, I'm flattered. I didn't even know you believed in God. He said, well, I still don't believe in God, but Ken's making me pray over you, so I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) So he does. He lays his hands on me, prays over me, my little atheist son. This goes for I don't know how many more months, and I start noticing. Ken's calling me up. I want you to come watch John break his boards. We do this. Afterwards, Ken would say, now, David, you need to get on your knees. John's going to pray over you. My son, it's changing. I don't know what's happening. They're hanging out together. They're spending their evenings together. And in October of last year, my son earns his black belt. By the way, so Ken has trained thousands of people. We, when we brought him down, he grew up with Jun Ri, the founder of Taekwondo. He grew up in his house. He is Jun Ri's right-hand man still to this day. When we brought him down, I had no idea this was going to happen. But Ken pulls his own black belt off, and he gives it to my son. And my son gets up and he gives a speech because Ken had told him you have to give a speech. And he says, Dad, you remember what I said to you so many months back? And I'm like, Julie and I are both sobbing. And he says, well, I just want to tell you, I'm back. I'm back with God. I'm back with Jesus. My son tonight, my son is bringing three of his best friends over tonight to my house. You know what they're coming over for? Because they want to go plant a church in Portland, Oregon, and they, he wants me to meet these guys and just begin a conversation. My son baptized his best friend a couple of months ago. This Sunday night, my son, who's in four discipleship relationships, four different groups, he's baptizing a young man this Sunday night. And so we've all arranged our schedules because we want to get to see my son baptize some boy that um, grew up in a real rough environment. My son is there. He's going to do the baptism. That's what discipling does. So my son grew up going to a Christian school, he grew up listening to the finest preacher in the world, in my opinion. <laughs> he went to Sunday school. He has a wonderful mother. He's got a great... He had every advantage you can think of. He went to Fried Hartman for a semester even. I mean, what else could we have done? But until somebody loved him enough to pour himself into him and bring the Jesus out, um, my son was lost. So if I were you... And I said, hey, I want to do what Jesus did. Jesus found some guys and loved them enough to change their lives eternally. If I were you and you really believe in that, I'd just start doing it. I'd just start doing it. And the Holy Spirit will lead you through the rest. There's a lot more could be said. Thanks for hanging in there with me. And if you see a tall, red-headed kid walking around, um, that'll be my son. And uh, he's a walking miracle. And he's what happens. He's what happens when we take disciple-making seriously. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from TCM International Institute's track called Disciple Making Theology Matters at the National Disciple Making Forum. You'll find dozens of other great resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.